Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. A journey back through time to baseball's old ballparks with firsthand accounts on what it was like to spend the day at Ebbets Field, the Polo Grounds, Comiskey Park, Crosley Field, Yankee Stadium, Forbes Field, and so many more. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area in center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a Twilight Doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And this should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the evening. At this point, three episodes into season four, we've told the stories of baseball's lost ballparks through firsthand experiences from many Hall of Fame players, broadcasters, clubhouse managers, grounds crew, the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame, bat boys, season ticket holders, organists. But today is our first episode featuring a former umpire. Larry Young was a Major League Baseball umpire from 1983 to 2007. He called two All-Star games, two World Series, worked the ALCS three different times, the Division Series six different times, and is currently an umpire supervisor for MLB. Larry Young, welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, I saw you on Instagram, and I'm not big on social media for a lot of reasons, but I saw a lot of the ballparks I used to work in. I really, I really enjoyed seeing that. Well, I'm glad you found it. It's uh, it's been a passion and something I I love doing. So, um, listen, let's jump into it. A lot I want to talk to you about today. You called your first game in 1983. When and where was that game? Where was the umpire room at that stadium? And how did you make your way to the field? My first game was uh, at Old Comiskey Park in Chicago. And this was big for me because I grew up 90 miles away in a small town of Oregon, Illinois. So uh, my my wife happened to be with me. I was working in the minor leagues in Omaha, Nebraska. And we got the call to be there the following day for a day game. So we made our, our, our way there at 6 o'clock in the morning and got there in time for the game. When you were a kid, were you a White Sox fan? Did you grow up going to Comiskey Park? I grew up going to Comiskey Park, but I was always a Yankees fan. Okay. Mickey well, Mantle, Roger Maris, uh, Tom Trash, uh, Yogi Berra, of course. And yeah, I was a big Yankee fan. You know, we think about players getting called up to the big leagues, but that day has got to mean just as much to you as it does to them. Yeah. My wife, as I said, was there. And I got a call from our league president who had a very distinctive voice. And we were always imitating him and, and calling each other and pulling pranks on each other. And when it happened, I thought somebody was imitating Joe Ryan, who was the league president. So I immediately hung up on him and said, I don't care who this is, but it's too early in the morning for this type of thing. So <laughs> I hung up on him and uh, he called, his secretary actually called me back later and said, uh, listen, I, I'm, I know you're excited about going to the big leagues, but I'm going to find you 20 bucks for hanging up on me. <laughs> he never did. but. Uh, so your first game is at Comiskey. Let's talk yeah. about that, about the umpire okay. room there and uh, how you'd make your way to the field and all those details. Well, the umpire room opened actually onto the concourse. 
So if you were on the other side of the, the, the locker room door and opened up, the fans would be walking by. So you had to get in and out quickly. Uh, there was the unique part about it. There were several unique parts about it, but the, one of the unique parts about it was there was a shoe shine stand right outside our door. So the other members of the crew couldn't wait to get to Chicago to get their shoe shines while they worked. They, you know, they drop them off on their way into the, the door and, and pick them up afterwards. And uh, everybody, all the umpires did that. Do you ever feel for, for your safety, though, being so close to the fans and having it open up to the concourse? You know, you should have, but actually no one really bothered us. Uh, I had some minor league stadiums that were like that. You had to actually walk through the crowd to get to the, the field. Uh, Sec Taylor Stadium in Des Moines was one I can remember. We had to actually walk out onto the concourse and then walk through, you know, probably 20 or 30 yards of, of fans and then go onto the field. But Comiskey uh, was very small locker room. Uh, it had four uh, lockers and uh, didn't have, uh, I don't know if you've been to too many uh, uh, umpire rooms, but they're, they're pretty nice. Now. Most of them are very nice. There's a lounge area and, you know, a TV area and so on. Old Comiskey had none of that. It was just uh, uh, one room for lockers, one room for showers. And then you open the door and on the other side of the door was the entrance to the White Sox. Uh, clubhouse so you would walk with the players down to the field and that happened at a, a lot of ballparks in those days the old cleveland stadium the old milwaukee stadium the old old detroit stadium so it made for some interesting walks back after the game sometimes how many times would you get a player bending your ear on the way to the field saying hey listen about last night or about that call or hey keep an eye on this did that happen yeah, that happened a lot, and uh, we uh, had to fight our way off, but not literally, but we had to, you know, walk with the players after the game, and sometimes it, uh, we had some discussions on the way back. Remember a discussion with Lou Pinello one time in uh, Wrigley Field uh, where we had this common walkway, and we argued all the way down to through the runway, and he turned right, and our locker room was left, and I followed him, all of a sudden, I looked up and I was in the, the Cubs locker room. I forgot where I was. But <laughs> there were some very interesting uh, walks back in those days. Well, and I think about the angriest I've ever seen a player on a baseball field is probably George Brett at Yankee Stadium with what happened with Billy Martin and the umpire calling that game. And I can't imagine having to walk back with him after that game. Yeah. No, in Yankee Stadium, we always had our separate locker room. It was on just the far side of uh, the Yankees dugout, the old Yankee stadium. And uh, that was never an issue for us there, but there were some, some places in the old Texas stadium, the old, old Arlington stadium, we had a chain link fence that separated the players and the umpires. We had the same walkway with a chain link fence and that fence had a lot of dents in it. There were a lot of interesting, uh, interesting conversations. So going back to that time period, the mid-80s, when you first started, describe what a typical day at the ballpark would look like for you, starting with where you park, do you take a cab to the to the game from the hotel? How do you get to the stadium? How does that work? It depended on the uh, town. Most of the towns, we would drive a rental car to the, the stadium. Like Yankee Stadium was very difficult for us to drive to. So we took the subway for years and years, and our hotel was right by the, next to the subway stop. 
and you'd walk down a flight of stairs and sometimes it was, you know, 90 degrees out and in the subway, it was much hotter than that. And we would ride through Harlem into the Bronx on the subway. And in those days we had to wear a suit and tie to the ballpark. So it was, it was uh, not a pleasant, uh, pleasant ride in the summer, but most of the time we had uh, cars. Uh, we didn't have the security that uh, they do today. Uh, I'm still working for Major League Baseball as a supervisor, so I get to see a lot of the ballparks current. And uh, it's very difficult for anyone to to bother the umpires going in and out because they have security coming in and they have security going out. But in those days, we didn't have that. But rarely did we have a problem with fans before or after a game in those days. And back then, did the teams provide food for you? Yep, there's always food available. We have a clubhouse uh, attendant in every every park. And um, there would be food before, uh, there would be food after, uh, you know, soft drinks, beer, whatever, afterwards. All right. So what ballpark had the best food and who had the, wor- who had the worst? Well, the best food, I'd have to say, is uh, in Texas, in, in uh, Arlington. That clubhouse man is a guy we call Hoggy, and he has an assistant called Cornbread. And they've been there for, um, well, let's see, I, I've been with Major League Baseball for 40 years now. They've been there for about 35. Wow. And everybody looks forward to going to Texas because of those two. And uh, we call it the ambience, the ambience that they uh, uh, they have at the, their their locker room. But uh, those uh, people are paid uh, by the uh, club, but we all tip them. And they, they do a fantastic job. They do our laundry. Uh, they do our, our shoes and, uh, you know, provide anything that we need. What is the food that you look forward to there? Well, in uh, in Texas, uh, Hoggy always has a, a, a brisket. That's his uh, specialty. And he also has uh, seafood. Uh, I mean, he, he'll get anything that you want. And um, the not so good, um, I guess, in the old Cleveland Stadium, the clubhouse man is, is now uh, not with us anymore. He was an older fellow then. And this was in the old ballpark. Are you talking about Cy? Cy Bynack or? Well, Cy was the uh, visitors. He was right below us and he would send the food up to uh, John, who was our clubhouse man. But yeah, Cy provided the food, but the clubhouse man would take all the leftovers home. So if any of us dared to go back for seconds, we'd get a dirty look and sometimes say, you wouldn't eat all that. uh, The food wasn't bad. It was just, uh, you know. There wasn't a lot of it. Going back to 83, when you first started, were you responsible for muddying the balls at that yes. point? Okay. And I never minded doing it uh, at all. And I guess that went away sometime in the late 90s where the club, all the clubhouse personnel, the club, the clubbies, uh, rub the balls now. We don't, we don't rub the balls anymore. And I don't know how that evolved. It, it just did. And uh, a lot of the guys not only didn't mind it, they enjoyed it. And some guys used to uh, have various degrees of the darkness. Like I worked with Richie Garcia for a lot of years and he really made, made them dark. And then other guys, you know, were a little little bit lighter. Yeah. There was definitely a science to it. Yeah. We had the mud from the Delaware river, uh, Lena Blackburn's family, and uh, they still use it. The same, same mud. Working in the American League, you were fortunate to call games at some great, great old ballparks, including Tiger Stadium, Fenway, Comiskey, as we talked about, Yankee Stadium. Which one of those ballparks was your favorite to work at? 
Well, I always liked Fenway. There was a lot of history there. Uh, the bad part about Fenway, the locker room wasn't very good for one thing. And we had to walk with the players down in uh, the old Fenway. Now there's a newer locker room in Fenway where you don't have to walk with the players, but um, they had a lot of ground rules in uh, Fenway Park, a lot of nooks and crannies and ball hits here, it's in play, but it's here to this line, it's out of play. And that was before replay. Now with replay, it's not so bad because we can correct any mistakes that we make. But in the old days, uh, Fenway was very difficult. I liked uh, working in Chicago and Milwaukee because uh, I could get home from those two places. And then later when we combined the American League and the National League into one staff in 99, I was able to get home from the Cubs as well. So I, I like working at all three of those ballparks for sure. Tiger Stadium, the way that ballpark was built, the fans are right on top of the plate. And so I imagine, unlike a lot of ballparks, you probably heard a lot from the crowd. Yeah, Uh, the Tiger Stadium was very, very close. And it was hard to work there, too, because they had beams in the outfield that supported the roof in the outfield. And they were right next to the outfield wall. So a lot of times the ball would hit those beams and come back. And it sounds like it's easy, but it wasn't to tell because at a certain point, if it hit above the fence and hit the beams and came back, it was a home run. And sometimes you couldn't tell whether it hit the fence or it hit the beams. And we had a lot of interesting discussions there in, in Tiger Stadium. What were some of the strangest ground rules at some of the lost ballparks that you worked at? Well, I think really I, I tell a story about a minor league in Clinton, Iowa, that had the outfield fence went all the way around to almost the end of right field and didn't go all the way around because there was a trucking outfit beyond right field and the semis needed that that distance to swing through and make their uh, uh, entrance into that area. So a lot of times, and this would happen day and night and happen during the games where the trucks would come in and we just played it. If it hit the truck and bounced back, it was in play. If it went underneath the truck, it was a double. But some of the, the, the interesting places... Uh, Montreal uh, had the dome that one day they closed the dome and they couldn't get it open. And so they, they uh, left it closed for years. And they had uh, marks on the outfield, uh, on the ceiling of the, of the roof, fair or foul. They were very hard to do. And uh, the old Metrodome was the same way. They had uh, the, the white uh, canvas as a, as a roof. And during the day, that thing was light. It was the color of a baseball. So it, it was real easy to lose the, the sight of the ball in the Metrodome in, in Minneapolis. And tell me about your experience at Tiger Stadium. What was it like getting ready at Tiger Stadium? That was probably the worst dressing room that we had ever. Very, very tiny. We had to walk with the ball players. Although uh, the clubhouse guy, believe it or not, is still there after 40 years, Jim Kaczynski, one of the greatest guys that uh, we know, and he had excellent food. So even though the locker room was bad, the food was top notch. That can sometimes make all the difference, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to take you back to August 22nd, 1989. You were the home plate umpire for a game between the Texas Rangers and the Oakland A's at Arlington Stadium. And when that game started at 735, Larry, the temperature was 95 degrees. So first of all, was there ever a hotter, more humid ballpark than working at Arlington Stadium? Well, we knew going into Texas, it was going to be hot. And the locker room in the old stadium was really unique. We had to wear a suit and tie to the ballpark every day, except in, in Texas, because we literally drove up 
to the outside of our, our locker room door and faced the parking lot. So we, we didn't have to wear a suit and tie because no one saw us. So we got out and went in, and that locker room was, was huge. And, uh, of course, we had uh, Hoggy later on, so it, it made it great. But we knew going in it was going to be hot. Some of the other places that I can think of that were extremely hot uh, were Washington and Baltimore. They were always hot and humid. It seemed like it rained every time we went there. Oh, RFK and Memorial Stadium, right. And then um, one of the hottest I've ever been uh, was at Kansas City for a day game when they had turf everywhere. Working on that turf during the day in, in Kansas City was the hottest I've ever been. In the middle of summer, does that heat just sort of burn right through the soles of your shoes? It does. You can feel it right through the soles of your shoes. And Sparky Anderson was the manager of the Tigers, and he told us that one of the ways to beat the heat was to take a lettuce leaf and put it under your cap. Well, we tried anything. That didn't help. <laughs> it really didn't. <laughs> Larry, your home plate today. Oh, today? I got to put all that stuff on today? Can I do the night game or? <laughs> <laughs> no, you take your turn. If you have a reputation or missing your turn, that's that's a bad reputation to have. Yeah. I never missed a turn back there, and uh, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, you know? I, I bet. Okay, so back to that day, August 22nd, 1989, Arlington Stadium. It's the Rangers and A's. Going into that game, I'm sure you knew that Nolan Ryan had a chance to record his historic 5,000 strikeout. Is that correct? Would you know stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we knew ahead of time, and it was just uh, luck of the draw and just uh, following our normal rotation and following our normal schedule that I haven't had the plate that day. The A's had a really good team that year. They had a lot of good players, uh, Willie Wilson and, and Ricky, of course, and Ron Hesse was catching. And Tony La Russa was a manager who was one of the best managers I've ever worked with, a great guy. Ricky led off the top of the fifth. Ricky Henderson leading off at the top of the fifth. The A's won of the Rangers nothing. Henderson, a double and a strikeout. And all eyes in baseball are on this game, Larry. In fact, some eight hours northeast in Kansas City, the Royals are playing the Angels at Royal Stadium. Their game is in a rain delay, and their manager, John Wathen, called and asked for the satellite coordinates so his team could watch Nolan Ryan pitch from their clubhouse. And as for Nolan Ryan, I know watching him pitch from the upper deck, which is where I usually had to sit, or watching him throw on TV, it, I know it didn't do justice to just how fast he threw. Describe what it was like to have only a catcher's glove between you and a hundred and something mile per hour Nolan Ryan fastball. By the time we had him, by the time I had him, he was uh, past his prime, but still really good. And still threw really, really hard. Uh, he was well into his 40s, but he threw gas. He probably wasn't the hardest thrower at the time, but uh, at 42, 3, whatever he was, he just had to hold your ground and trust the catcher. That he was going to catch it. Who would you say would have been the hardest thrower at that time? Would it be Randy Johnson? Randy Johnson. Yeah, Randy Johnson and uh, Roger Clemens was throwing harder at the time than than uh, Nolan. So first pitch of that at bat was a called first strike. Nothing and one to Henderson to be followed by Lansford and Canseco. Ricky was immediately chirping at you. He was famous for talking to himself, talking to the catcher, talking to the umpire. Could you, I know the crowd is loud, but could you hear some of the things that he was saying? Oh, yeah. You heard those stories about Ricky, and he always talked in the third person. Ricky doesn't like that pitch. Uh, Ricky thinks that pitch is high. Yeah. Quick story about Ricky. Uh, we had one of those situations, not in this game, but a different game, where I call him out uh, strikes. He said, Ricky doesn't like that pitch. Oh, yeah. I said, it's it's a good pitch. He says, Ricky thinks you're full of, you know, fell in the blank. So I threw him out of the game. 
And I said, uh, hey, next time you talk to Ricky, tell him he's out of the game. Uh, So, by the way, Henderson, especially during that at-bat, took forever in between pitches to get set in the box. And again, it's 90-some degrees outside. Even, you know, at this point, it's maybe 9 o'clock at night. You've got all that equipment on. Do you just want to say, Ricky, let's go. Come on. A lot of guys were hesitant to go against Nolan because he had lost some velocity at the time. But he would also, if he didn't like the way the if Ricky was taking too much time or somebody's taking too much time, I know Willie Wilson was was famous for it. Nolan didn't like it one bit. He'd buzz him, you know. He'd throw inside to say, let him know that uh, he didn't appreciate him messing up his game. Yeah, uh, I know Ricky said something before that at bat. What he said was, "Hey, if I strike out here, can I take the ball out to him?" And uh, Chad Chad Cruder was the catcher and says, "Well, you're going to have to fight me for it." Well, that's that's what went on with Ricky right before that last at bat. All right, so pitch number two, another called strike. Ricky really can't believe that. Third pitch is a fastball. It's low and outside. One ball, two strikes to Ricky Henderson. Fourth is a curveball that misses low in the dirt. Flash bulbs continue to pop on every pitch now. And with the count two and two, Ricky fouls off a high fastball. The next pitch is a curveball that just misses. Three balls, two strikes. George W. Bush, who was the managing partner at that time, part of the new Rangers ownership group, is in the stands. And it looks like if you're watching the TV coverage that he says to R. Giamatti, who's the commissioner in the stands with him, was that ball high? Giamatti nods his head yes. And with that, Ryan throws a fastball past the swinging bat of Henderson and records his 5,000th strikeout. At 8.51 p.m. Texas time, Nolan Ryan gets number 5,000. Again, I know you're an impartial observer, Larry, but still it must occur to you that in real time that you are now part of a very important moment in baseball history. Yeah, you'd have to be a really good trivia person to ask who the home plate umpire was during the 5,000 strikeout. But uh, George uh, Bush was um, always came into our locker room when he was, uh, was he the president of the, the Rangers? or he was, he, the, he was the managing partner at the time, yeah. Yeah, he always came into our locker room before, and uh, we really, really, really enjoyed seeing him come into the locker room. Uh, didn't have much to, to do with uh, Mr. Giamatti. He passed away uh, after a short reign. Um, but if Ricky wouldn't have swung, I would have had the, the pleasure, I guess you could say, of calling him out on strikes. It was a good pitch. But what I remember about that, as soon as it happened, all the flash cameras in those days, there weren't many, if any, uh, phone cameras. But all the flash cameras went on. It was like daylight. It was just a real cool scene. I was glad to be a part of it. You worked the 1991 All-Star Game at the Sky Dome in Toronto. I'm Jack Buck with Tim McCarver. And Tim, these fans must be worn out already. We've already had some terrific thrills with the game yet to come. We've had many players on the podcast talk about what it was like playing in their first All-Star Game, surrounded by some of baseball's all-time greats. I know it's somewhat different for an umpire, but still... It's got to make an impression on you when you're there and you can just go through the list of people who eventually made it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Batting third from the Baltimore Orioles, shortstop Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah, I just watched a little bit of the home run derby. I don't know what I was doing, but I was on and Cal Ripken won that home run derby. And I was umpiring third base in the home run derby. In those days, that's the two young guys, which is myself and Greg Bonet of the National League. I had left field, he had right field in the home run derby. And uh, during that whole two or three days that we were there, that was a lot of fun. All of the activities for the family, my family was there. 
Uh, you got to uh, go out on an island, uh, city island, I think it's called in Toronto, with uh, all the people from baseball. And it was just just us, the people from baseball and and just uh, all the parties and the breakfasts and presenting of the rings. All that was made for a fun time. I worked two. I worked one in uh, Chicago and one in Toronto. And uh, I enjoyed both, both of them. Back in the day, there were some legendary arguments between umpires and managers. Who was the most fun to argue with? Tom Kelly was one of the greatest uh, man- managers. I think if you ask somebody from that era, uh, Tom was just class of, of the twins. Uh, the guy I liked was Gene Lamont. And uh, I liked Gene because we grew up about oh, about 10 miles apart in a small town in Illinois. Uh, he was older than I was, but we, we knew each other. We we had some mutual friends, and we actually used to referee basketball together in the offseason. So he was the manager of uh, the White Sox, and uh, I knew there would come a time when our jobs would clash and I'd have to do something about it, and we realized that. And the one time that I did, I, I threw uh, Carlton Fisk out of the game, and Gene had to come out and you know show the players that he was supporting him. So he says, well, here it is. You're going to have to throw me out. I said, okay, Gene, call me something. He says, I can't. I'm not going to call you. You're my friend. <laughs> so I said, all right, let's make it look good. So we just started talking, and he says, how you doing? Uh, are you going out uh, afterwards and have a beer? And he was pointing at me. Like he was really giving it to me. I said, yeah, and I started pointing. And I said, I'm going downtown. And I'm going to this place. And he said, he put his finger, like, right in my chest. He didn't touch me, but he put his finger right in my chest. He says, okay, I'll see you there. I'm going to buy you a beer. So everybody thought we were having this big argument. And actually, what it was was deciding where to have a beer. So who was the worst? That's easy. It's Earl. Earl Weaver was the worst. My first objection was Ralph Houck. And uh, Ralph was famous for the next day is a new day. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I threw Ralph out of the game. And uh, my partner, one of my partners was Richie Garcia. And he said, hey, Ralph, that's uh, that's Larry's first ejection. He says, oh, congratulations. Sure wasn't my first. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was it was over. But Earl never had that. He would carry a grudge. He would remember uh, you called that same thing in Yankee Stadium two years ago. And, and he was tough. He was by far the toughest I ever I ever worked against. Well, and if you go back and watch the video, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen, the argument, I think that happened in 1980 at Memorial Stadium between Earl Weaver and Bill Haller. <laughs> I mean, he makes it he makes it personal. You ain't no good. No, you aren't either. Yeah, you aren't you either. You ain't no good. Yeah, Your ass will never have our games. I hope. Uh, what do I care? Yeah, what do, what do I, I care? care? What are you doing here now? Well, why don't you call the league office and ask him? Yeah, I will. Oh, good. Don't think I will. Good. And it goes on for minutes. And don't you ever put your finger on me again. You hit me, Earl. You put your finger on me. That's okay. One of the all-time great clashes between an umpire and a manager. Yeah, and and Bill, Bill was a tough guy. Bill was an ex-Marine. Bill Haller was an ex-Marine, and, you know, Earl wanted to fight him. You do it again, and I'll knock you right in your nose. I didn't touch you. You pushed your finger. I did not. And we were all hoping that would happen. (laughs) Because <laughs> we know exactly what would happen. It would have been a no contest. <laughs> there is a, an unspoken rule between umpires and catchers that if one of you gets hit with a foul tip or a ball, the other will take a minute, give the guy who just got hit some time to collect himself. Are there any other unspoken rules between players and umpires like that? Getting hit with a foul ball, obviously, uh, we no matter where you go back there, no matter what your position, you know, you need a few seconds to collect yourself. And uh, I've taken a lot of foul tips to the mask and 
my wife seems to think that you know there's a uh, that that explains a lot of things. You actually see stars. You see little uh, silver things come bouncing around and coming at you. It takes takes a while to shake it off. There's nothing you can do about it. My worst uh, injury on the field was a thrown ball that I got hit in the face. Uh, Jay Bell accidentally hit me in the face with a thrown ball, and uh, that that was the, the nastiest one that I had. Describe that play because I think he was throwing it back. No one on base, and I was at second base. And the ball was hit up to the middle, an obvious base hit. Well, on its way out to the outfield, hit, it, the ball hit second base. The ground ball hit second base and bounced straight up in the air. Well, there's no chance to get him at first base, so I'm coming in to take my position inside. And Jay turned and thought that he might be able to get the runner, thought it was through, and throw it behind him. So he didn't know I was there. He just turned and fired, and I was about 10 feet away, and he hit me right in the forehead. Did it knock you out? Were you unconscious? No, uh, I, I wasn't unconscious, uh, and I thought I, I was okay. Uh, Mark Grace was playing first base, and Mark Grace came running over you know, to me and started to grab me, and I thought he was going to argue. He said, Larry, don't move. You're hurt. I said, no, I'm okay, and then you know, the blood started, so I, I wasn't okay. <laughs> but uh, they did a great job of first aid in the, the locker room and sewed me back up. Yeah, amazing. Your first year was actually, your first year was 83, and that was Gaylord Perry's last year. I think he was playing with the Royals at that point. Did you ever call any games he pitched? No, I didn't work Gaylord at all. Uh, 83, I had maybe a dozen games, I think. So I was a call-up umpire. I was my only call-up umpire. And then 84 was the same. I had like 45 or so. But no, I, I never had Gaylord. Could you tell when a player was greasing the ball? I mean, how easy was that to be? Okay, this ball is coming out funky out of his hand. and. Players are looking silly here. Something's going on. Well, yeah, because the spin apparently kind of stops when you, you load the ball up. And he was famous for Vaseline, I guess. And uh, the guys uh, knew that he did it. and They were keeping an eye on him. But, uh, yeah, it, it looked very different because the ball did crazy things. But then, like, like Joe Necro uh, had the file in his back pocket. Uh, famous for that were Stevie Palermo and, and Dave uh, Phillips caught him red-handed where he he pulled all the stuff out of his back pocket and the file came out. He threw the knuckleball, which did crazy things anyway. So now you add filing the, the, the baseball and, and making a groove in the baseball. Catchers used to do it too. They used to sharpen the buckles of their uh, shin guard and just run the ball by when they're throwing it back and making a cut. But um, most of the pitchers now uh, want a clean baseball. They don't, they don't want any, you know, if they have any spot on it at all, they throw it out where in my day sound like a dinosaur now, but my day, they, they'd love to have that, that little yeah. ball. If you go to a game today, you'll notice that every time a ball hits the ground, it's taken out of play. Back then, if someone didn't hit it in the stands or that ball stayed for a long time, right? Yeah. In fact, pitchers used to get mad at you if you threw a ball out. They say, hey, come on, I need that. <laughs> Why are you throwing it on? I need that one. What a difference. <laughs> yeah. So final question for you, Larry. The sound of the ball coming off a bat of a great hitter, it just, it sounds different. Who is the guy that you distinctly remember the sound of the ball coming off their bat where you were, whoa, that is a different sound? I have to say Dave Winfield. Whoa, he hit this one hard and it is going to be into a pretty stiff wind just picking up right off the corner of that upper deck coming off Lake Erie. 
Dave Winfield used to hit line drives that were lethal, and uh, he almost uh, took my head off a few times while I was working second base, but uh, the ball off of his bat was uh, unlike anything I've ever seen from anyone else. One time we were in uh, Florida, the University of Florida, for a spring training game. So uh, the kids from uh, the university were using aluminum bats. So Dave Winfield said, hey, can I use an aluminum bat today in spring training? I said, are you kidding? You're going to kill somebody with an aluminum bat. So <laughs> yeah, can, I, you, can you imagine? No, I cannot. I, no, you're not going to use an aluminum bat. <laughs> well, Larry, it's been a, a remarkable career, and I'm so thankful. This has been one of the most informative, entertaining podcasts that I've had the chance to, to host. And so uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the, for the time today. Well, I'll keep up the good work. I really enjoy uh, picking up on uh, the old ballparks that you, you bring around. It brings back a lot of memories. I was talking with my brothers and my nephew, Gabe, before this interview about what kinds of things that we'd want to know, you know, if we had the chance to sit down and uh, have lunch and talk with an umpire. I could have talked to Larry Young for another couple of hours, honestly. There were so many questions that we just didn't have a chance to get to today. Maybe... Maybe we'll bring him back for another episode down the road. Uh, A quick reminder, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to receive episodes a week early, along with premium video content and lots of other extras, become a Lost Ballparks Patreon. The Patreons who support Lost Ballparks are honestly what keep this podcast going. So thank you for all of your support. If you'd like to elevate your Lost Ballparks experience, just visit our Patreon page at lostballparks.com. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Manny Savlakis, Mike Dunn, Briggs Buckingham, and Xavier Guerra. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next Wednesday on the Lost Ballparks podcast.